classical pianist Penelope Thwaites is not only an accomplished musician, but an articulate evangelist on the joys of music. Although most of her life is spent in the classical world, Penelope loves jazz and talked with me about her fascination with the form and how jazz can gain a broader audience. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Penelope's first introduction to jazz was Benny Goodman's take on Bach. My parents had a record of Benny Goodman, and he wrote this marvelous, well, he actually arranged a wonderful little piece by Alec Templeton called Bach Goes to Town. And uh, we were all very keen, really, on classical music, and particularly the music of Bach, but it is gorgeous, and I can remember it very well on that sort of rather husky 78 uh, record and of course it's been reissued now and it's delightful because my children enjoy it just as much now we were just playing it the other day so that um, that I think is an early memory and then a few years later somehow or other my parents this is not jazz I suppose in the proper sense but my parents got um, a recording of Harry Roy and his band and we enjoyed all that greatly I mean others that I've hugely enjoyed and again my children which is such fun we can enjoy it together uh, Fats Waller we we really enjoy and love it's trad jazz and I was just trying to think why why it's appealed to me and I think it's because when I was little I loved to dance I did ballet for three four years when I was small I adored but I do adore ballet and so I think that that went hand in hand with a love of rhythm and also just, to me, a kind of light-heartedness, which uh, wasn't just light-heartedness. It had something, uh, something more feeling in it. It came to me much later that people who are really into jazz are really almost more serious about it than classical musicians. It's very, very intense. <laughs> <laughs> And you better believe it. (laughs) That's really interesting. Is that true? I mean, I know that jazz people can be very intense, but I always think of the classical people as very intense. So I love hearing this from the other side. Well, it depends. I mean, a nephew of mine now is is a a full full blown jazz musician. He's he's studied jazz at uh, at the university, and he's starting to make his career. And he really enjoys what I always understood was modern jazz. I mean, you must forgive me because I really don't even know the terminology. I'm, a, I'm, just, a, I'm just a visitor, really, in the jazz Well, field. that's how I am with classical, so yeah, we're fine. I, I, I visit. <laughs> uh, but um, he, I said, well, do play me a track of uh, what you really enjoy. And I, I, I'm sorry to say I can't remember it, but it was one of these incredibly impenetrable um, seemingly endless pieces. And I, I fell off the wagon halfway through. You know, I just could not stay with it. But he, uh, he loves it. That's so funny. I had a friend who called that music um, music by the yard because yes. you could cut it anywhere and it didn't matter. That's how he felt well, about it. You could start. He didn't know where it started, ended, didn't know how to tap into it. Well, the the people who are playing it were obviously having a great time, and there are obviously people who listen and also have a great time. Mm. I think that, um, but but what I do love, absolutely love, is uh, 
quite a lot of the trad jazz, and, and I'm a huge admirer. I mean, a pianist like Oscar Peterson is an example to any pianist anywhere. He's just staggering. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest, classical pianist Penelope Thwaites, feels certain pianists are great examples for all musicians, classical and jazz. And for that matter, our friend Fats Waller. I mean, just wonderful. The tone, the spring. It's very interesting that a jazz pianist has to cultivate this kind of spring in the sound, which most classical pianists cannot get. We try to get it. Uh, we aspire to it. But it's, we're coming from a different place because I think we, if we're doing what we ought to be doing anyway, we try to cultivate legato. We try to, in a way, work against the tendency of the piano to be 
percussive. Unless, of course, we're playing a deliberately percussive piece, you know, like Bartok's Second Piano Concerto or something like that. But so we are working against that. Uh, I'm amazed, actually, how few classical pianists can really make a piece swing. It's, mm. they, don't, they can't do it. Jazz musicians always think of time, and we always talk about time, where you feel the time, which is what makes it swing or not swing or gives it a particular kind of swing. Mm. But you're right, especially with piano, it, there is a spring, because as you're saying it, I'm picturing my own hands mm. when I'm playing. There's a real spring to it. Yes. So talk about Gershwin, because he seems to be such a wonderful place where jazz and classical come together. Yes. I um was it Gershwin who wanted to study with Ravel and Ravel yes. said very much better for you to go on composing like you are, you know, don't don't even think about it. Yes, I mean he must have been a, a phenomenon. Uh, there have been people who have I suppose successfully crossed crossed the barrier. I mean Leonard Bernstein I suppose is one. Previn um, has managed it, but they—they they are the exceptions. I—I—I I, I don't really know as much about Gershwin as I would like to. I just respond as millions of others have done to some of his wonderful songs. So, when uh, in my uh, my work with the composer Percy Granger, his music, when I found that he was a 
tremendous admirer of Gershwin. He played the piano concerto, he played Rhapsody in Blue, and then he made uh, arrangements of a couple of the songs, The Man I Love and Love Walked In for solo piano, as a kind of encore after he'd played the concerto. And then he saw uh, the opera Porgy and Bess quite early on and was absolutely captivated by it and made an arrangement for two pianos. And he did then try it out in the basement of Steinway's in New York uh, in front of Gershwin's publishers to make sure that they were happy about oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. He took it from the vocal score, not the orchestral score, so there are some interesting discrepancies there. This I discovered quite recently from uh, a very interesting conversation with Richard Contiglia, who met Granger. Um, but anyway, the point is... In a way, it doesn't really matter. The point is that he made a wonderful piece out of it for two pianos and incorporated 14, 15 of those immortal tunes.
My guest, pianist Penelope Thwaites and John Lavender on Percy Granger's arrangement of Gershwin's Porgy and Bass. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Did lots of people make arrangements of Gershwin's tunes or of other people's tunes like that? Surely they must have done, but I, I'm not a Gershwin expert, so I can't really tell you. Uh, I always think of his written-out arrangements, because yes. every time I hear yes. Gershwin, it's his arrangements That's of right. it, unless it's a jazz piece that I'm, sure. you know, unless it's Lady Be Good, yes. you know, one of his popular tunes. Mm, that's right. Well, I mean, he seemed to be such a, a marvelously gifted person, I mean, as a performer, and then as a composer, and then as a arranger, he seemed to be able to do everything. He just seems to be one of a kind, Gershwin. Has there been anyone like him? I don't think so. How do you approach a piece like this, playing this? Do you listen to other recordings of Gershwin? Do you try to get into a Gershwin mood? Good point. Well, my uh, piano duo partner, John Lavender, is a, a sort of, he's an opera man. He likes opera. I uh, love certain operas, but I will not describe myself as being one of those people that that uh, moves in that world. And um, so he actually had the full score and we tended to to be thinking, to listen to the opera, to think about where this music had come from so that when we were deciding things like uh, tempi, I mean, sometimes there is room for your own interpretation of, of, of a tempo um, and we would then go back to the song itself and say, well... What's the feeling behind this song? And then how do we reinterpret it on the piano? I think um, there is a real point for pianists in thinking about singers, studying the way singers use their voices, the way they phrase, because it's very possible for a pianist to work completely against that, to be um, to play a song like a pianist instead of th- playing it like a singer and that we tried to play the tunes in that fantasy on Porky and Bess we tried to play them as though we were singing them that's how we felt about it um, and you discussed this the two of you together on how you vigorously <laughs> and sometimes contentiously uh, yes oh yes we we um, I mean I suppose on the whole I, I tend to want to keep things moving and be as sparkly as possible and uh my duo partner likes to take time over things it's not those are generalizations it doesn't always apply but that's so we come at it from a different point of view but i think at its best that can be a complimentary thing i think it's good because there are times when you should take time over something and you should make sure that you are allowing it to make its musical point um rather than just rushing on uh, if you're if you're interested in communicating mm, mm. and well, that's the point that is the point
As a jazz musician who visits the classical world, as you so aptly put that, I know all the characters in the jazz world because obviously I am a jazz musician. I know lots of jazz musicians. And so I look to the classical people as all these very classy, tuxedoed, gowned, fancy folk. Then I get to know some of them. They're just as wacky as all the jazz musicians I know. (laughs) And I know that you have spent so much time with the music of Percy Granger. And if ever there was an interesting person, Mm -hmm. it's Percy Granger. Just talk a little bit about him for our audience here who might not know his work, a little bit of his background, but also why you don't think that his music is better known, because you've spent so much time correcting that. Yes. Uh, He was born in Melbourne, where I grew up. I was actually born in England, but my family went back to Australia, so I grew up in Melbourne. So I know uh, sort of geographically and physically where Granger came from. I've also met his family, members of his family, and... There are a lot of things which um, resonate with me, having grown up in Australia. And, of course, his museum is in Melbourne, a very interesting collection, not just of his own things, but music by colleagues and artefacts from Pacific Islands and and all sorts of things. Uh, But he actually settled in America in 1915, and he uh, finally bought a house in White Plains, which is still there and it is one can visit it the curator of that house is Stuart Manville who is uniquely placed actually to give a certain view on Granger because although he never met Granger some years after Granger died Stuart befriended helped and eventually married Granger's widow Ella who was a character in her own right, an extraordinary uh, lady, Swedish lady. And I'm sad to say that I I didn't meet either of them, but I have spent so much time not just reading about Granger, but talking to people who knew him, including a cousin who lives in London, that I feel I've gained a certain insight into his character. I think the thing I feel very proud of as a fellow Australian is that Granger took a world view. Mm. He took... He was not... He was trained, very vigorously trained, as a classical pianist. He started as a child prodigy. His parents split up. His mother uh, went with him to study in Germany, in Frankfurt, and he had a very rigorous training. He made his debut in London in 1901 and lived there until they moved in 1915. And in a way, that time in England was extremely extraordinarily busy because he was on the one hand playing Tchaikovsky, meeting Grieg, playing his piano concerto, concerts all over the place. At the same time, he became absolutely captivated by folk music and went to some of the folk festivals in the north of England and started making his, I think, unique settings of folk songs, developing a relationship with folk music which was the opposite of a kind of patronizing attitude, which some classical musicians, alas, have, actually pitifully have, because we all come out of folk music. Music comes from people. And Granger always had this feeling of... (laughs) He was always in conflict because he had to make his living in the elegant drawing rooms of London or the concert halls. That was the only way they could live. But he 
loved, what he responded to when he heard some of these folk singers was the reality of what they were doing, that these songs came out of real experiences. They were almost dragged out of people because of things that had happened to them. So in his settings, far from trying to tidy them up and make them all sort of sweet and neat, he liked to emphasize all the irregularities, the five and a half beats in a bar followed by the seven beats in a bar or whatever. He loved the way these folk singers would dramatize the story. So you might have 20 verses, but not one would be the same. And then he did a very interesting thing. Because of his interest in classical music and his training, uh, and in composers like, say, Richard Strauss, where music was getting incredibly chromatic and harmonically very um, complex, he used that very often in folk settings to create a kind of mood. So you'd have a tune that seemed artless, but maybe it was telling a story about someone dying or being murdered or passing out, you know, with love. And the harmony tells that story because it's so... Um, there's a lot of kind of chromatic movement in the bass. You'll hear it. And I I can talk about it, of course, but what I would recommend to anybody who's interested is that they get hold of the recordings that now exist. Uh, there are quite a few people who've started recording Granger, but Chandos uh, undertook a complete recording series. So if anyone can get those from mm-hmm. Amazon or whatever... Um, one of the things that I loved doing, apart from recording the piano music of Granger, was working with three different and remarkable singers on his songs. Because the piano accompaniments are really interesting. They're difficult sometimes. And they illustrate this point that you have a tune going on and also in the accompaniment the story is being told. Mm.
Penelope Thwaites on Percy Granger's In a Country Garden. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Carmichael and this is Jazz Inspired. For a discography of the music played on our show and a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about my music and what I'm doing and to sign up for our email newsletter, visit judycarmichael.com. My guest is classical pianist Penelope Thwaites. I commented to Penelope that to my ears, Percy Granger's early compositions seemed very jazz-influenced and very much of the time in which they were written. You're right. When I decided that I was going to record, or rather I was asked to record, his original compositions for piano, many of which have arrangements in other you know, in other genres. So, I mean, you get chamber version or you get a song version, but you get the piano version. I decided to follow through in chronological order when he first got the idea, and that's reflected in each of these pieces, because he was absorbing influences like a magpie from the earliest days. The strongest influence that came to him, he said, which he's never forgotten, was hearing the music of Bach. And and that he, Bach was his god, and he loved the the many strands in Bach's music, and he felt it was democratic, which is very strange. <laughs> <dangerous. laughs> they were all so his early, very childhood recording, childhood pieces are are very much influenced by Bach. But going further on, because um, I think we were talking about this when he was a young man and came to live in London. He and his mother, from time to time, apart from going to concerts and operas and all that sort of thing, used to go to the music hall. They used to enjoy that. And he was absolutely enchanted. I think there was always a kind of mischievous streak in Granger, too. I mean, he, he, he did some crazy things. Somebody remembers him playing the Greek piano concerto. I think it was in Sydney. And suddenly, at the beginning of one of the tutties, when the piano part had a rest, he leapt off the platform, rushed to the back of the hall and came back again, leaping back again just in time for his next entry. I mean, that is not the mark. It's not what usually happens in a classical concert. <laughs> but I like <laughs> it. I wish it would. I'm, you have to do that at your next concert. 
in honor of Granger. Judy, I honor Granger, but I have been clear for some years that I am not Granger. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there are certain things. I mean, he would walk uh, 50 miles between concerts with a, back, a rucksack on his back. He was an extraordinary man. He was a very athletic character. But uh, I was telling you about the music hall. because, And he would integrate that into his compositions. Yeah, I mean, uh, he he played, he, he um, yes, he, he would try and, I mean, he actually said one, one of his little pieces, which he called Gay But Wistful, uh, was in the style of a music hall song. And he obviously enjoyed that. I think all these things appealed to his sense that music was for everybody. Mm. He hated snobbery in music. I love that. So do I. Because there's so much of it in all kinds of music. I mean, there is in pop music. It's funny that you're saying this and people would say, oh, nobody's snobby about pop music. But listen to how those people talk about their music. (laughs) Like it's life or death. (laughs) Much more than all of us do. We know it's important to us. But we don't act like it's life or death. It's really interesting. There is too much snobbery. I like that.
Penelope Thwaites on the Percy Granger composition, Indahomey. So talk about Indahomey. Well, he, one of the things that he, he went to see was a, a show which, I mean, one wouldn't even be allowed to say the title these days because it's completely politically incorrect. But let's say it was um, a black American show that came to London and there was a lot of fooling around on stage, which he absolutely adored. I and mean, he wanted to do that. And it was it was called Indahomey. And so he took one of the tunes from that um, and he turned it into his own piano piece. But what is so amusing in the piano piece, it's fiendish to play, absolutely fiendish to play, as is much of Granger, because he wrote for his own virtuoso technique. Uh. And he makes the pianist turn somersaults and, and fly up into the air and do a trapeze act. You know, it is just a kind of a circus act for pianists. Uh, and it's, but anyway, if you can bring it off, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me think I want to go home and try to practice this, but I'll probably wind up, you know, wanting to end it all or something. But it's good. It's inspiring. It's inspiring. Well, uh, I think the reason why Granger isn't, you asked me actually for earlier why his, his music isn't heard. I think one reason why pianists have not played great, well, there are a number of reasons. One is that it's, some of it is tremendously fun music, but it's for a virtuoso technique. Mm. So people with the technique feel that they're a bit too serious to play this. Oh, isn't that interesting? And people who would love to play it have not got the technique to play it. He did, I mean, he did try, he tried awfully hard by making easy versions and particularly easy versions. I mean, Country Gardens has got nine, nine different arrangements by Granger himself. He was always doing this, you know, he was desperately trying to make his music more accessible. But the fact is, a lot of it is very difficult. And that's why, and also it's, they're short pieces. So if you group them in an imaginative way, they go very nicely can go very nicely in a recital program but I remember the very first time I included Granger I took a deep breath and thought can I actually play Country Gardens at the Wigmore Hall? Interesting, really? And what happened was I played it after a set of pictorial pieces by Malcolm Williamson, an Australian composer who became Master of the Queen's Music actually and then I played three of Granger's folk settings, just as a singer might have a group of three folk songs. And it worked fine. Um, and that gave me the encouragement to go ahead. And I read uh, John Bird's biography, a very interesting biography of Granger, and thought, well, I could make a whole program about Percy Granger, talking about him and playing about 15 of his pieces and following through his life because... It's an extraordinary life. Talk about Peggy Glanville Hicks, not Granville. No. I got it right. Glanville. <laughs> yes, Peggy Glanville Hicks, Australian composer, born in Melbourne, again, 1912, but uh, lived in New York from 1942 to 1959, where she worked for the League of Composers. She was a critic on the New York Herald Tribune, but a very adventurous composer, and she loved percussion. And she loved, she felt percussion and rhythm were, and, and melody, these were the important things. And she she collected music in India as well. 
And she wrote the Etruscan Concerto for Piano and Chamber Orchestra for an Italian friend who came from that part of Italy. It's all a bit international, this work, because she took an Indian tune for the first movement and then she wrote, she, she, she described what she saw as an Etruscan scene in the second. The last movement, she takes a Greek folk melody and she works the kind of jazzy element in this. I mean, there's a lot of syncopation. And she said to me, you know, there's a double bar halfway through that movement which where we need a, a cadenza. Why didn't you write one? Mm. So I've written, it's very short. But I love it because it's got such vitality and such... It celebrates life, really. Thank you. 
You've talked a number of times, or mentioned it in this interview, the international flavor of things, Mm -hmm. which I'm always fascinated with because certain kinds of music, especially time signatures, I think of that in jazz, that we might think of as very unusual and difficult. All you have to do is go to another country, and they do that as a matter of course. Quite, quite. Or rhythm things that you're talking about, a yeah. certain feel or something. So it's really fascinating when you do open up and bring all these things together because it's all celebrating life, as of you had talked it about. Is. In my fourth year at university, we all had to write a dissertation, anything of our choice. And I decided that because Australia was it's geographically, really, in the Asian area, I, would, um, I chose the topic of some aspects of North Indian music. Mm. And... It. I had to then sort of investigate how um, how that tradition, the North Indian tradition, of course, is distinct from the South Indian tradition. The North Indian tradition also was very much influenced by Alexander the Great coming in with his musicians from from Greece. So the Greek modes and the North Indian ragas are, are sort of related. Um, that I found that fascinating, and later when I went to India to to actually attend a performance and see how the audience are talking about the rhythm, you know, they actually take part in it, and then they, they sort of the the uh, soloist will do something incredibly complicated. Have you have you seen one of these? Oh, things? absolutely! And then the tabla player. Oh, yeah! It's just like jazz. They're it improvising, is. and the audience is right there, you know, and they're waiting for the end of that phrase, and then they come in on it. And uh, the audience is right there, as you mm. say, because I've done a number of tours for the United States State Department. Have you? And in it's in been, India? And it's fascinating in different places in the yeah. world where they're familiar with jazz, where they're not familiar with jazz. And it was a surprise to me because I went to India in 87 and didn't know what to expect. Yeah. I had sort of the stereotypes that any American might. And to have this greeting and have people think, oh, yeah, jazz improvisation – they didn't necessarily know about the jazz I was playing, but no. improvisation was not at all a foreign concept no, to them. absolutely not. And they keyed into it right away. When I talked about what I was doing, they were, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. well, then that's like Indian they, they classical don't have music. A written, they don't have a written tradition. They might do in the Bollywood films now, but I, I mean, that's a, that's a hybrid. But the, the tradition, doesn't. there's nothing written down. It's also interesting, too, as you're talking about the experience, the Australian experience, because I think people who haven't been there – but they have met Australians because you're all great travelers, as you know. Have to be. Have to be. And so you're around and you meet an Australian. I know from my own standpoint, Americans, I think, really relate with Australians because mm. there's an expansiveness where there's an enthusiasm. We have a lot in common. Yes. And on the surface, we can all look alike, too. You know what I mean? There's a certain thing that you put us all together but your experience is in an entirely different place in the world. It's not that you're just a different country. Mm. It's that you're surrounded by a much different experience. As yeah. you're talking about the whole Asian experience, the South Seas, everything that you're close to geographically That's right. is fascinating, which I don't think a lot of people think about. Well, most people just think about their own country and where they are. But you know what I'm saying. There's a lot of influences that you have that are unexpected to one who doesn't give great thought to that sort of thing. It, it, it's, it's, it's all changed enormously, uh, Judy, in the last 30 years. I mean, really, uh, since I left, um, 
it's extraordinary. I mean, it, it was in the fifties. You know, it was it, it was quite a provincial outpost of the British Empire. Um, people were terrified about that the China might come. You know, people talked about the Yellow Peril, and it was a sort of and there was a white Australia policy at one point too. You know, it was, it was all based really on fear, and, and also partly because the Japanese did nearly invade Australia, um, and that is utterly, utterly changed. There's a highly international population. Of course, all the refugees from Europe also after the war. You've got it's, it's a real polyglot. I think it's a bit, in some ways, like America was earlier on. I think maybe a difference is that because the United States is is so huge, uh, and huge, of course, in influence, none more huge probably in the world now. I think that maybe a lot of people feel that that is the world. You know, the United States basically is the world. Um, Australians are less inclined to feel that because they're a smaller power and they realise, you know, they've got to be part of something. And I mean, there's a lot, a lot of watching of Indonesia at the moment because there's a vast, vast population with vast resources. Mm -hmm. And it's also... A Muslim country, and you know, there's all those sorts of things. We have to think in global terms. I mean, that's one reason why I started this performing Australian music competition because it so irritated me living here that people had these cliche ideas about Australia, in which Australians had fully colluded very often. And um, and this competition is for all nationalities, and these kids choose their own programs of two or more Australian composers. Mm. People don't know there. They know about our popular music, but not about our classical music. And <clears throat> and then they perform, and they're judged on how how well they put it across. I think it's wonderful that you're a woman with a mission, obviously, and getting the word out and smashing some of these cliches mm. about Australia, and certainly widening the audience for Australian music. So. The competition, how do people find out about the competition? Best thing is to go to the website, and it is www.amcoz.com.au forward slash P-A-M-C. Perfect. And all will be revealed. <laughs> and anybody who qualifies from any country is welcome to come into it. Fantastic. And I hope, may I say, Judy that I'll have the chance, having just been able to nip across to New York all too briefly, that what I'd really love to do is to pay a proper visit to your country and be able to share some of our common things because we have so much in common. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to classical pianist Penelope Thwaites. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. The opening music was airmail special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD, Trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. 
For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about what I'm doing in my music, visit judycarmichael.com. Special thanks to Tom Rickenback, Stephen Linda Plotnicki, and our webmaster, Megan Lewis. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway & Sons and the American Hotel, Sag Harbor, New York. Visit online at theamericanhotel.com. Thanks, too, to Sag Harbor Florists. You can visit them at sagharborfloristandgifts.com. Penelope Thwaites, unlike many classical pianists, grew up improvising, although she doesn't pursue jazz playing today. She does record and perform frequently in duet with pianist John Lavender. Here is one of Penelope's favorite jazz pianists, Fats Waller, with his sometime piano partner, Hank Duncan, on Gershwin's I Got Rhythm. Thank you. 